This is episode 11 with five-time Olympian Jackie Cooper. I'm your host, Tristan Cannell. Got a special guest today. We've got Jackie Cooper in the house. Jackie, one of the greatest aerial skiers of all time, one of my favorite winner winner athletes. She's got a distinguished career, which includes 139 World Cup events. She's been to nine World Championships and been selected to five Winter Olympic teams. So what better than to learn from a champion and someone that's just faced so much adversity during her career. So it's going to be great to Pick the mind of Jackie. Before I get Jackie on, just a big thank you to everyone that's tuned into all my shows. I really, really appreciate all the messages of support and especially all those five-star reviews I've been getting on iTunes. So please, if you haven't yet, log on to iTunes, leave me a quick five-star review. Really helps me grow and spread the message on to more and more people. Now, without further ado, here is my interview with Jackie Cooper. Right, guys, my special guest is Jackie Cooper. She's described as the greatest greatest aerial skier of all time. Jackie's distinguished career, including 139 World Cup events, nine World Championships, and she was selected to five Winter Olympic teams. Her accomplishments include five world titles, 39 World Cup medals, and 24 World Cup wins. She's a story of courage, persistence, talent, and hard work, and I'm very grateful to have on the line Jackie Cooper. Jackie, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. I know that you've had a whole lot of uh, wonderful sports people and interesting guests, so to be uh, in your lineup, it's pretty amazing. No, I think uh, you definitely compliment everyone that's in there. Like, just going through, I knew a, a whole heap about your story, but just going through, I didn't realize how many injuries you actually had, but we'll get to that later in the show. What I really want to touch on first. We spoke before, you were doing a number of presentations last year. Let's kick off with motivational speaking and what you really, you know, your future in that and kind of what you want people to get out of that. Okay, so uh, when I was probably halfway through my career, the man that actually um, recruited me as a young, um, I guess, a 16-year-old, teenager, he said halfway through my career, he said, look, I really think you should try and work on the way you speak and present because... No one wants to listen to a dud on a radio or an interview and you'll need to accept awards. And he was, you know, just basically saying the whole reason why you should, you know, talk properly. And he said, who knows, one day you might be a corporate event speaker. So without even really planning um, this, I guess, career progression, uh, I sort of fell into it after I retired. There was a few, um, a few jobs that came up through a lot of the agencies, just seeing if it was something that I'd be interested in. And... My mum says if there's one thing I do better than aerial skiing, it's talking. <laughs> she thought that I'd be pretty good at it without any coaching or anything like that. And so, yeah, so what I do is um, I basically, basically I love connecting and communicating with people. I like storytelling. I don't take myself too seriously all my career. So it's sort of done in a way where I take everyone on a bit of a journey. It's, I'm not speaking at people. It's like... Um, 
getting them, you know, to sort of sign on to this journey and they're sort of coming along with me. And it is funny, people don't know whether to laugh or cry, but there's very strong themes throughout my presentation. And some of those themes will resonate more with others, depending on what they're going through. Some might take one or two things and some might make a list of 10, 15 things. So it depends on where each person is at when they attend a session that I'm presenting at. And I just hope that if someone... You know, one person in the audience took one thing away and they made a change. I think that's a wonderful impact that I can have on somebody being better. And I think, wow, that's even more powerful than me being an aerial skier because the one thing that got, you know, is me, 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 me. It's very selfish being an athlete. Yeah. It's all about making me better. I want scholarships overseas to make me better. I want to get best coaches to make me better, but to actually use my career to help make somebody else better, I think that's actually uh, a better way to live my life. Yeah, that's tremendous intent. Just, I'm really intrigued, Jackie, in terms of getting into the sport. It's not like when I was seven years old and I'd go and with my dad on a Saturday morning and signed up for soccer. How does one get into aerial skiing? Well, there's a lot of ways you can get into it. It's changed over the years, just like, you know, everything sort of evolved, uh, on sport, it, it moves very quickly. So these days now, it's a, it's a like specialised recruitment, and you've got a national talent identification program. They've also got, um, I guess, a transition pathway from acrobatic sports to go into aerial skiing. So they might target retired divers, trampolineers. Definitely have a relationship with Gymnastics Australia to move retired gymnasts because they've got a skill set they've been working on for fifteen or twenty years. Instead of making that skill set redundant, it's actually got a new life in an adult sport beyond 16 years old for a female in gymnastics. But that's now. But back when I started, it was really about um, kids that were either passionate about acrobatics, either did it as a thing. I actually had, um, you know, I just had uh, a passion for being upside down. It was evident really early on. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually a triplet. Not many people know oh, yeah. that, but and you got twins, yeah. Don't you? I've got twins, and yeah. I'm actually one of three girls born in 1973. And when you're born with two others at the same time, whether you like it or not, the siblings next to you are measure sticks for yourself. So my parents looked at me and then looked at my triplet siblings, Fiona and Sarah, and thought, "Gee, this one's a bit different. This one's a bit odd." <laughs> and I was just really a kid that was. Uh, I craved uh, anything a little bit risky. I did love um, cartwheeling and forward, you know, rolling and jumping from one thing to the other. I liked heights. I taught myself how to somersault on my parents' bed. Then I made friends with kids deliberately if they had trampolines. Like, I was quite crafty because my dad wasn't going to take the gymnastics and early on getting um, a a trampoline in, in the backyard was out. So, you know, as a young kid, he's like, you just have to create your own fun. So I managed to find some kids with trampolines and sort of grew up in their yards. And, and I just did that. And that went on for years and years. And we moved from Beaumaris to Brighton. And I went to a trampoline all the time at the Brighton Rec Centre. Um, it was something that I liked to do. My triplet sisters would come with me. They weren't into the acrobatic side, but they'd sit and happily watch. And when I was 16 years old, someone that was in the sport of aerial skiing saw me and suggested that I should be an aerial skier. And um, I ran home that day and told my mum I was going to be a world champion, and she didn't even hear the word, the word world champion. She just thought, you've been talking to a creep at a trampoline. What are you doing? <laughs> and um, 
from then on, a man came over. To, man came over to my house and presented me with a ten-year plan, and said, you know, based on, cause, look, I actually wasn't a talented uh, acrobat at all. I was fearless, yeah. and I had some skill level, but I wasn't highly trained. I wasn't even great. But what I um, was great at was the um, the I guess the passion. I had that going every single day you know I was persistent you know I went every you know longevity there with my sisters I was organized and they're all attributes of successful people and, and champions so with those sort of things that you can't learn there's innate ingrained things as at 16 years old he thought he could use this to create something pretty amazing and um, with that 10-year plan that was in 1989 he said that in 10 years you know, if you look at the plan every day and you stay motivated and inspired and stay on track, you will be a world champion in 10 years. And cut a long story short, the gentleman, his name's Jeff, he was with me in Switzerland 10 years later and I was the world champion that he thought that I would be when I was a skinny 16-year-old school kid. Yeah, that's quite incredible. Sounds like you are quite the visionary very early on. Was that something that you always carried through your whole career? Me? I, was, I wasn't a visionary. I was just a kid that latched on to anyone that... I guess, was um, hopeful for me or gave me any attention. When you're a triplet, like seriously, you're never really singled out. There's all of you, my parents had four kids. We sort of like, there was just all of us. So I had someone straight away that uh, took an interest in me who thought that um, my behavior wasn't unruly or out of control. They just thought it was everything from um, excitement to passion they they renamed my my I guess my personality where my parents just thought they called me the energy and it really wasn't in a positive way they just my dad didn't really connect with me because he thought I was this you know kid that always wanted to be up trees but it was you know this guy who found me he he enjoyed that about me and thought that was great so I wasn't a visionary the man who found me was almost like he looked into a crystal ball saw bigger things for me and harnessed that personality about probably obsessive compulsive doing the same yeah. thing every single day that passion that drive that he actually harnessed that into something um, quite powerful yeah Jack did you ever have a conversation with him to ask him what, what exactly he saw in you oh my gosh we still we still speak we're the greatest of friends we still oh, speak wow. every couple of weeks yeah yeah when I asked him what he saw in me and that's exactly what he saw he saw a kid with a massive driver and a big motor and um, he said, you can't teach kids. I asked him, you know, what it was that he liked about me, and he said, you know, I thought you were the right colour. And at 16, I thought, gee, that's a little bit... Um, I thought he was being racist, to be honest, but I yeah. didn't understand it. And he said, no, no, no. If I took 10 kids up to the top of the 10-metre diving board and asked them to do a somersault off the top for the first time, most would go green because they'd be so worried with fear. But he said... You'd be the, you'd just jump straight off. Yeah. So you don't want someone that's going to be green who's worried about fear when it comes to aerial skiing. So he said he saw that in me, um, that I was ready to take on a challenge but and, it, and I was the right colour. But the one thing he really does hang on to, he said what he loved about me early on is when he presented me with a plan, he said you made an unwavering commitment at 16 years old to his plan. Now, most 16-year-olds presented with an opportunity and a possibility, small possibility of being the best in the world, they'd be like, oh, yeah, don't think so, go away, you know, yeah. whatever. No, no, too much hard work, no, don't like the cold, you know, too many no's, too much thinking. I just grabbed onto it. And maybe I did because 
my dad didn't think that I was going to be successful in March and he wasn't very a positive person. And so I just grabbed onto it and I just saw it as this big shining light, some hope for me, you know, and this man was taking an interest in me. So, you know, when they say that kids, when they have a really nice teacher, they always do better because they want to impress the teacher or a coach or whatever. For me, this guy... Because he actually singled me out, found me, and believed in me, I didn't want to let him down. Big time. Jack, you talked a lot about sacrifices just in that little piece you just gave us then. In terms of giving advice to maybe young athletes on the way up, like how much you obviously gave so much away of your own childhood to sacrifice for your sport. Can we just talk a little bit about that? Look, sitting here now as a, you know, 44 year old, I could think back and think, well, you know, there was a lot of sacrifice there. I lived overseas for 20 years. I removed myself from my family, my very tight, obviously, triplet siblings. I had to live in a remote area and live with teammates. Um, Just, you know, different things, you know, sacrifice potential different income, university degrees, because there was no internet or online learning back then. But when I was actually in it, right in the middle of my career for 20 years, and whether it was rehabilitating from nasty injuries or being knocked out of an Olympic Games and and thinking that was a sacrifice. I never, ever want to use that word sacrifice. I didn't see any of it as a sacrifice. What I saw was that I had this awesome job. What joy do I have that I get to somersault on something other than my parents' bed and a trampoline. I get to go to the best ski resorts in the world. I'm funded. I'm making some really good money here. I'm actually the best in the world at it. Sacrifice didn't even come into it because... You can't just love the winning and you can't just love uh, wearing yellow bib like, you know, because we have a yellow bib like Lions Armstrong, you know, the tours and stuff like that, the tour leader wears that. You can't just love those. You actually have to love all of it, you know, the cold mornings, the minus 30, the living away from the family, the rehabilitation, the injury, you know, um, pulling yourself up out of the snow, terrible results, poor form, missed opportunities at Olympic Games. You have to love all of it. And if you love all of it, nothing's a sacrifice. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about that, about creating a job for yourself out of it. What's the process for you to get in? Because I'm I'm sure that there's only a certain percentage of you guys that can actually make a career out of it, correct? Well, 2%, I think it's 2, maybe it's 2 or 4. I mean, we're talking very minimal. 2% of Australians, elite athletes, so I'm not talking about footballers or people or netballers who actually get paid a wage. Elite athletes, you know, that represent Australia at the Commonwealth Games, Olympic Games, um, World Championships, you know, elite athletes, 2 to 4% of those athletes will make a living. So you think about all of the others. They're either working two jobs just to fund their passion. So I was lucky enough to be in that 2%. Um, really for a number of reasons. I was lucky enough because I'm from a country that funds their athletes well. And you might get a lot of athletes that complain about, oh, there's not enough funding, you know, we could get more money. But when you actually compare it to other countries, Australians are some of the best funded athletes in the world because Aussies believe that as taxpayers, it's money well spent. So I got funded. So I was funded. I didn't have to pay for anything. So any money that I was making through corporate endorsements, bonuses, uh, even the, you know, prize money appearances was all um, going straight back to me. And for me, at the end of my career, I was, um, I didn't have as much sponsorship as I did early on. 
there was a lot of money around the Sydney Olympic time, so 99, 2000, 2001. Yep. Everyone in Australia wanted to sponsor sports people, and if all the summer Olympians, the top ones, were taken, they're like, oh, we'll just, you know, we'll just sponsor Jackie. She's uh, she's a world champion. There's a Winter Olympics coming up soon. She's Australian. Hell, we'll just sponsor her. So there was good money there, but after I blew my knee out at the Olympic Games in 2002, all of those people that got on board, they quickly got off as well because they saw no value in me. But towards the end of my career, I had one man that threw me a life ring, and without his support, his name's Greg O'Neill from the Trove Financial, Mm -hmm. I met him through um, Chris Anstey's dad, who's the basketballer, Ken Anstey. Yeah, and he knew him because he was involved with the Tigers basketball. He sponsored them. I met him for a coffee, and after spending 20 minutes with me, he was the first person in years and years and years that sponsored me again, and that meant that I could get back onto World Cup, win myself a few more world titles, get myself to a record five games. And then since I retired, he's put me on salary as an employee, as an ambassador, so that helped the transition from sport, and you know, there's been a lot of talk about life after um, life after sport with athletes crossing the line and finding it tough. Well, for me, I had someone throw me a life ring in sport to make sure that I could um, that I could continue competing, continue to be the best in the world. And when I retired, he continued to support me. Where that is not normal, you know. Most athletes, when they finish up their career, the sponsors go. There's no income that leads athletes into depression. Where I had someone that was willing to support me um, with or without sport. So I just think there should be more of that as well. And, you know, athletes to make money in sport, but athletes to make money um, after sport as well. Yeah. What advice would you have for young athletes out there in terms of if, if they don't have the same sort of advantages that you got with the gentleman that helped you, is there any other ways for them to push another career? You know, these days, it's different from when I jumped. Like now, people, like a lot of the athletes, if they're doing a lot of Instagram, they might um, they might get a lot of paid tweets or paid posts. Yep. So the world has changed since I retired. So back when I was around, it was about, um, I guess, uh, you know, obviously when I competed, the reason why I was able to do quite well was there was consistency in performance. So I was a world number one, not just once, and it wasn't just, oh, I came, I was in the newspapers for a few weeks. Like every single year I'd pop up as either nearly winning or winning the world title or there'd be some massive pull-up which would make the news. So it became a bit of a household name. So people are willing to sort of support me because of that. But these days I find it's harder for young athletes to gain any type of um, following unless it's from social media. In the media, in the newspapers, stuff's barely reported because everyone goes and moves on very quick. And excuse my language here, but Olympic results and world champions, you win a gold medal, it goes by faster than a fart in the breeze. Like Mm. people read it and it's gone. People don't even remember who won medals a few weeks later. So it's very hard for those athletes to get traction, therefore sort of turning that into a household name and some longevity and some dollars. It's really difficult. So these athletes these days, they really are funding, um, they're funding a passion. And that's what I love about elite athletes is that they, you know that when they're standing up there in the green and gold, they aren't doing it for money. They're not. They're doing it because it makes them feel good. They're doing it because they like to wear the uniform. They want to see how much they can get out of themselves. And that is pure sport for no other reason but for doing it for themselves. 
Guys, we hope you're enjoying the episode with Jackie Cooper. If you haven't yet, check out some of our other superstars that have appeared on the show. But for the meantime, I want to give you a quick sneak peek of our next episode with another five-time Olympian, Natalie Cook. And it's often not talked about, you know, people want to hear the good things, but yeah, that was a tough time for me. I got a lot of bad press. In 20 years of my career, I didn't really get bad press. And and at my fifth Olympics, when I wanted to go out on a high, and I had envisaged and imagined for a year that I would carry the flag and that would be the highlight of my career, I'd be the team captain. Like, that's what I had imagined. And then all of a sudden, it didn't happen and I caused, you know, a a divide in the nation's sentiment um and so yeah it was really not a nice feeling that i had to get over to then go and compete within two days you know so so you've got your resilience piece and your ability to bounce back and your ability to get up when it's not going to plan and is really really important in everyday life watch out that episode will be out on thursday but without further ado let's get back to our interview with jackie yeah. Jackie, given the dangers of the sport that you had, you know, you were at the top for 21 years. Is that like an unusual number for a normal competitor? Oh, well, the average lifespan of an athlete in aerial skiing, I think, you know, around the world with different teams is seven years yeah. they'll spend on a national team. So for whatever reason, they'll either get injured, uh, maybe blow their knee out, they find it too hard to recover, they might lose their scholarship and they don't make it back onto the team because they've maybe lost motivation and, and while they were recovering, they decided to go to uni and they just move on. For me, I was never able to move on. Emotionally, physically, mentally, I was connected. So, you know, for me, all of those surgeries, there wasn't one where it broke me, there wasn't one where I needed to stand in front of the mirror and ask myself, hey, should we hang up the ski boots, this is too much. I was always drawn back um, to a sport where it isn't just a possibility that I'm going to get injured, it's a reality. But as long as you know that's a reality, you have to be comfortable putting your head in the lion's mouth, and I was, Mm. because I felt that that risk uh, outweighed the joy that I got when I was actually doing what it was that I was doing. So I didn't. I loved it for 21 years. If I could have found the fountain of youth after Vancouver, I would have based in it for a year and then come back younger and done it again for another 20 years. But that can't be done. So I just never got. Like I said, I loved all of it. And some people just get sick and tired of being on the road. Some people get tired of being away from family, or they get sick of uh, long winters. You know, and that's why they re- they retire. I'm not too sure why, but I know why I did it for so long. Yeah, Jackie, did you do any special mindset training at all? Oh, no. No, look, when Jeff found me when I was 16, I was a very different person than what I am or what I was at the end of my career. He found me. I I was quite a um, shy, not too sure of myself kind of girl. Like I said, my dad, he wasn't um, overly supportive of me. And for the first 16 years in my life, I've had a voice tell me, you know, don't talk, you know, um, you're not going to amount to anything, all of this stuff. And that voice for 16 years is quite strong. So, you know, I sort of started believing that until Jeff came along and slowly, slowly after years and years and years, that shell, that exterior starts hardening up. Those little experiences that I have and being able to get on top of them again and overcoming adversity, they're like pennies in a bank. So all of a sudden my bank's getting very full and I come out with greater life skills, um, you know, I guess 
more resilience, a, a greater belief in myself. And that wasn't there early on, but because of my sport, there, you know, there are life experiences that you can't get from uni and you can't get anywhere else. And at the end of the day, when you're standing at the top of the in-run, there's no one there to actually hold your hand or, you know, ski with you down. You have to do it yourself. So it um, teaches you to be quite, um, I guess, connected with you. You have to know what you're doing. You have to believe in yourself. And when I first started jumping, I didn't even know I'd be able to somersault off a jump, you know. So, And at the end, I knew that I was the best at it. So, you know, just through 21 years, I changed and it was more than one change. I really do think I reinvented myself many times, mentally, physically, and technically. Yeah. You mentioned Jeff plenty of times. You also mentioned at the start your, your father wasn't so supportive. But given all your success, who kept you accountable through the whole thing? My mum. Well, you know what, though? You mean accountable so I didn't get um, so ahead get of myself? Or... Because let's look at your record. You know, you've got, what, six, well, five world titles. You've been to five Olympics. Like, for myself, if I went to one, I'd probably have a massive head. So I can only imagine <laughs> what you were going through. No, I don't think so. Like, I think most people and most successful, I mean, I've met, you know, some really, like, big celebrities. And at the end of the day, they... They still go to the toilet, they still shower, they still have... Everyone's pretty normal, really. Like, I don't know. Do you know what? Someone actually told me this really great analogy once and they used it for sports people. Yeah. Um, sports people that achieve a lot, when you're talking like Elaine Beachley, maybe she's... You know, all these people that had four, five, six, seven world titles. Um, they said it's a little bit like an aeroplane with the classes. So if you were to say you serve people in first class, the people in first class, they're really lovely um, on an aeroplane. This is what a, a, um, a flight attendant told me once. People in first class are just awesome. They're so happy. They're nice. They're easygoing. The people in business class, they're the hardest class to manage. <laughs> but, and then the people in economy, they're just happy to be on their once-in-a-lifetime trip. So if you relate that to sport, kids that get on their teams for the first time or first couple of times, they're just happy that they're at the Olympics or they're just happy that they're representing Australia. Then you've got the first class like me. I'm just wrapped that I won five world titles. Gee, what a blessed life I've had and thanks to the taxpayers. It's been up and the people like Greg O'Neill. All these people, I'm just grateful for the people in my life and yeah. it's just, it's perfect. So people in business class that are maybe second in the world or third in the world or got injured or got, didn't get their mind right or support right or they didn't quite get there. It's the business class sports people that beat the loudest, that have the biggest attitudes, maybe because they never got to first class. Yeah, it's interesting you brought up Lane. I interviewed her a couple of months ago, and she was actually telling me a little bit about, you know, you, you spoke about, well, she did win seven, but she won six in a row, but she virtually didn't celebrate any of them. Were you, were you in the same position, or did you actually take a time to actually reflect and celebrate? Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, I didn't at all, actually. Like, you, look, I love these Crystal World Cups. They're, they're hand um crafted blown crystal and everyone that's uh, in the winter sport that has, is on the FIS the International Ski Federation World Cup Series everyone wants the, the crystal globe it's just prestigious there's some countries that don't send their athletes to the Olympic Games if they're winning the crystal World Cup because it's on Eurosport every week um, it's actually more valued because they see an athlete that wins the crystal world the coveted crystal World Cup is because they've been the most consistent athlete um, in 12 events over 16 weeks 
And it's just like a real, it's almost like Survivor Outlast and Outplay, right? Uh, Where the Olympic Games is the best person every four years for four minutes, right? So it depends on where you place your value. But everyone wants a Crystal World Cup. So I've got eight of these sitting in my linen cupboards. They're not even displayed. (laughs) And I'm just thrilled and at peace knowing that they're here with me. They don't need to be out. I don't even need to look at them. But I'm just happy they're here. And even when I got them, I wouldn't really actually even spend more than a few minutes thinking about it. Um, when I got them home, I would just grab them and I was like on a hoarder. Yeah. I'd just grab them, put them straight into the living cupboard and make space for the next one. And one wasn't enough and two wasn't enough and then I wanted three and then I wanted four. So they're so beautiful that I just kept wanting to get more and see how many that I could collect. But no, I don't think I really celebrated them. I reflect now and through speaking when people ask me questions about them and I do think it was special but I still probably haven't really um, given a lot of thought about what I've achieved considering some people go a lifetime and don't even get one where yeah I've got five but I mean like I said I I didn't go into the sport um, when I first met this man and he said I could somersault on skis that was the one thing that got me um, fired up which lit something inside of me because you know I was fascinated by acrobatics so I thought wow wouldn't it be great to do it on something other than a trampoline so you know that's what I was happy about yeah I wanted to be a world champion but I definitely just wanted to jump on snow that was my first thing yeah Jack you've got little ones have you shown them any footage of what you used to do uh I have a four-year-old and twin two-year-olds and um without even showing them they sort of know what I did. I was at Mount Buller last year and my four-year-old was three back then and I don't think she really uh, knew what I did until then. So we went up to the mountain and when you're at the mountain, people will look at you and whisper, that's Jackie Trooper, that's Jackie Trooper, that's Jackie Trooper. All of a sudden, my three-year-old after a couple of days wasn't calling me mummy. She says, Jackie Trooper, come over here, Jackie Trooper, can I have a drink, Jackie Trooper? And it was pretty funny. And then we were at the chalet at Mount Buller and they've got some photos of me around, quite large ones, and we're walking down a hallway um, and I actually went to go to the bathroom and I said to a girlfriend, can you just hang on to my daughter, I just need to go into the bathroom. And I was in the bathroom and I heard this scream from my daughter, I'm like, oh my gosh, what's happened? Like, I came running out and she was screaming because she saw me on the wall, she was so excited that her mummy was on the wall and she was licking the photo. (laughs) And I thought, oh my goodness, calm down. But she knows what I did. She talks about um, being a champion and a skier. I don't think she wants to be an aerial skier, which is okay by me. But they do know. And the two-year-olds now, when they see skis and we've got some skiing coming, I'm going to be an ambassador for Mount Bore this year. They're, I think the two-year-olds aren't going to ski, but um, they say, that's mummy, that's mummy. So I think... I think they sort of know, but definitely Madeline, Maddie, she knows and she's excited and she's proud. Yeah, Jack, when you go to the snow, can you keep under control and just do your normal skiing or do you have to sometimes unleash? (laughs) I'm always unleashing. I've got a wonderful friend up at Mount Blair. Um, His name is Spook and he's been working for the mountain, I'm going to say 40-something years. And he helped um, build the jumps. He moved the, you know, did all the over snow transport to set up the World Cups down there. He knew me when I was on the uh, working at the supermarket up there, bagging groceries. So he saw me throughout my entire career. And there's not Andy Kelly's his real name, but Spooky's his um his 
pet name for anyone that knows him. And there isn't too many people at Mount Bore that actually can challenge me or keep up with me on that mountain because, you know, this terrain isn't like skiing, you know, off-piste at the back of Blackcomb or something like that in Whistler or something. So I ring up Spook and say, mate, I'm on the mountain, and we go out and, you know, because it's Mount Bore, we can organise first tracks or wait skiing without anybody around and we just tear the mountain up just go I don't know like so fast where I'm actually frightened (laughs) which is good and um, yeah so he's probably the only person that can actually sort of get the heart going where I'm actually scaring myself which is nice to do every now and again because other than that I'm sitting on a chairlift with tourists chatting to them maybe taking a run with their kids I'm on Burke Street you know so all I need is about two hours of winter just to get the adrenaline going and I feel like that's enough to get me through to the next year yeah Jack when you're competing and you're in preparation for one of the big competitions in terms of setting up training for a particular jump like would you have to like really tone it down like because it'd be pretty you know injury prone as you probably already expected as well but can you give us insights into exactly how you prepared for a jump yeah so you can't tone anything down in aerials that's the thing so um you can't just go oh, we're going to taper off and we're going to go from the highest skill in the world to just doing some basic jumps you really have to train what you're competing and even on the competition day you have to showcase the jumps that you're competing in that hour of practice so that the judges know that you're not going to pull a rabbit out of a hat yep. and try something for the first time and I think, create risk or drama on, you know, global TV. So you're really at knife edge or lion's mouth stuff uh, every single day. So, um, and you do as a person and as an athlete, there's a responsibility there to weigh up that risk. A lot of the times I never, ever had my um, thinking straight. All my thoughts were with, I'm the number one in the world. I have people watching me, wanting to beat me. I must train and compete at the highest degree of difficulty in the world just to protect my yellow bib Mm -hmm. and all sense sort of goes out the window and early on in my career when I was world number one in uh, 99, 2000 and 2001, I had a lot of coaches that sort of took advantage of that unruly, um, risky, I guess, behaviour and it wasn't managed very well and it sort of really did come unstuck at the 2002 Olympics when I blew my knee out just uh, days before the Olympic competition. So to manage me later on in my career, I had coaches that were more measured. They really did take me out of it and they they were the ones that sort of um, suggested how we moved through a competition week with maybe only, because at that point I've already been jumping for 15, 20 years. I didn't need to do the biggest skills on day one or day two, maybe just leave it for the competition day and they really did assess the risk and the impact on my body to make sure that I could get through 16 weeks because, you know, I was getting older and more things were falling off towards the end. And that came, we had a great sports psychologist, her name's Barbara Meyer. She did great work with Elisa Camplin, myself, Lydia, and she really manages the athlete, but more importantly, she manages the coaches because the coaches can get a little bit out of control. If you've got an athlete that wants to go out and do 20 jumps a day versus uh, the average of eight of what most people would do on snow. An athlete that wants to do 20, an athlete wants to train six hours a day rather than two to preserve the body and smash themselves up and do the biggest risk. I mean, coaches loved me because I made their job easy. But that 
can't last forever. So Barbara made sure that they, she manages the coaches to make sure that they didn't get carried away and sort of triggered buttons in me that would want me to do more. And it was all about, um, she called it a team triangle, just everyone everyone at a point. So each point was either the coach on one point, sports psychologist, and maybe team officials with me in the middle. And it was equal communication, equal buy-in, everyone agreed. Um, and so that there was no push on pull, which would mean that the triangle would be not equal-sided. And it just had to stay as a... Um, equal-sided goal with, yeah, all the equal buy-in. So that's how I managed my, myself. But as far as a week training, it depends whether it's summer or winter, but normally you would arrive on a World Cup. The World Cup week goes very quickly. You get a couple of days training. Yeah. All you're trying to do is get up to your degree of difficulty, your maximum, mm-hmm. get used to the venue and the site, and then get ready for competition. And some days if the weather's bad, you might not get any training at that particular event until the hour before they say competition ready because you're at the mercy of the conditions at the venue and being in mountains, you know, things change very quickly and a snowstorm could wipe you out or warm winds and rain in Spain in March could just wreck the entire World Cup week. So you really just had to be ready to compete on any day. That's some really interesting insights. Jackie, I really appreciate you joining me today. Before I let you go on, everyone following Jackie online, she's www.jackiecooper.com. She's also on Instagram. She's at Jackie Cooper Ski. Now, before I let you go, Jackie, I have one final question. Now, Jack, you made it to the top, all those Olympic Games, all those world titles. For a final bit of advice for the people listening at home, for people chasing their own dreams, they might not have made it yet or maybe they might have just lost their job. What advice would you have for them trying to tackle their own dreams? What I would say is that um, I, I would say that if you if you approach every day, whether it's in sport or school or business, personal, if you approach every single day with a champion attitude, you'll always get champion results. So that's an attitude of how you handle adversity, an attitude to how you handle teammates or the people in your workplace. That's um, how you handle your competition, your failures, all of that. If you can handle that with a champion attitude just get up, brush the snow off and get it back out there, the results will come. It's about longevity and persistence and that ability to overcome adversity where so many people are willing to throw the towel in. Just have a champion attitude towards all of it and you'll always rise above. Yeah, Jackie, I really like that. A lot of people talk about effort, effort, effort. I really like the fact that you brought up something new, something about attitude and mindset. I really, really appreciate well, that. Where there is great effort, there is great performances. Yeah. Absolutely. Jackie Cooper, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I've had an absolute blast and I love the stories. Thank you. It's been great finally to have a chat. (laughs) Definitely. I think we'll have to have part two. I've kind of run out of time and I've got another 20 questions. (laughs) We'll have to do a part two. Yeah, for sure. Guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode with Jackie Cooper. Next on the show, I've got another five-time Olympian in Natalie Cook, so another great episode ahead. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or if you've got an Android, please log on to the website, www.talkingwithtk.com. Now, if you haven't yet, please get in touch with me. I'd love to hear any feedback or any guest requests. Send them through to Tristan at talkingwithtk.com. But... For the meantime, I'm Tristan Cannell, and this was Talking with TK.